On Raising Rare, we are bringing you the stories of parents learning how to raise a child with a rare disease. Our co-hosts, Sanath Kumar Ramesh and Brittany Ratke, parents of rare disease kiddos who have very different situations. Sanath's son Raghav has an ultra-rare disorder known as Setagatian-type spondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. Brittany's daughter Everly has been diagnosed with SET-D5, a mutation that carries with it the potential for a range of complications and even other diagnoses. My name is Kevin Fryert. After 30 years doing research and development at Pfizer, I started Salem Oaks to help patients and caregivers understand the world of biopharmaceutical R&D. Our goal on Raising Rare is to help and lift up our listeners by sharing the unfolding stories of these two families. We also feature the stories of other rare disease families, clinicians, researchers, and industry leaders in the rare disease community. If you'd like to follow these parent stories, please subscribe to Raising Rare on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to Raising Rare. Today we are speaking with Megan Loden. Megan is a rare mom who has two twin teenage daughters who have familial cerebral cavernous malformations, or FCCM. But before we get started, Brittany, how was Everly's weekend? We had a great weekend. I know I mentioned to you earlier, but we are in the middle of Snowmageddon here in Minnesota. So we actually spent the majority of the weekend at home, which was really great. So we're just prepping for an upcoming Mayo trip at the end of the month and kind of starting to pack for that. Wow, packing a couple of weeks early. I'm not used to that kind of thing. Me either, <laughs> usually. <laughs> yeah, so the snows hit you really hard and we've had almost no snow, but we're supposed to get something tomorrow night um, and they're not quite sure what. It might be snow, it might be rain or a mixture. It just doesn't sound fun. No, and it sounds like we're always opposite because we have a high of 42 coming up. So bring on your weather. We're ready for it. <laughs> well, Megan, we are so happy to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Of course. Well, let's get started. Can you tell us more about yourself and your family? Sure. Um, so my name is Megan Loden. I live just outside the Phoenix area in Arizona where we don't have snow ever at all. Um, super exciting. Um, I live with my husband and my twin girls who have familial cerebral cavernous malformations and also my 14-year-old son um, who is a freshman in high school. Um, and I work for Angel Aid. I write, I do fun things like this, talking to rare disease parents and organizations. Um, yeah, there's not much to tell about me. Oh, I do knit and crochet. So I'm like a little old lady sitting in my cardigans, knitting and crocheting. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. <laughs> so how old are your daughters? 
they are 18. Oh, so, so we are in that transition to adult period. It's interesting. Yes, being a dad of two daughters, I remember that time fondly. Yes, fondly. <laughs> that's the word I'll use. Um, it, it used to be that I didn't know what I was walking into when I would come home from work. Just, you just tiptoe and say, hi, I'm here. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about FCCM. What is it and, and how does it manifest? Sure. So FCCM is, like many rare diseases, a little different for everybody, um, even within my girls. I, and I have like the perfect case study because I can see how it impacts one and how it impacts the other. And it's not quite the same. Um, so FCCM is a genetic mutation that causes non-cancerous lesions, or sometimes they're referred to as tumors, that are scattered throughout the brain, um, and sometimes on the spinal cord and certain other organs, um, primarily kidney or liver, kidneys or liver, sorry. Um, and there is a sporadic form that is just called cerebral cavernous malformations, and that is typically just one malformation. Um, so it's just one area. Um, when it is the genetic form, they will grow more as they age. And, you know, just like one of my daughters had six, she had two of them removed, and now she has five because she's grown another one. So like that. So they'll just continue to grow one, um, you know, every couple of years, every few years, depending on how, you know, how the, it plays out with each individual patient. Um, and symptoms can be anything from migraines to seizures to strokes to, you know, um, partial paralysis, nerve damage, that sort of thing. It, it can be anything because it's in the brain. So, yeah. And you said it's non-cancerous tumors. Correct. So Correct. they stop growing when they get to a certain size they or do they keep growing? Grow. They will continue to grow. Um, and eventually they can bleed, but it's not like an abrupt hemorrhage. It's like a slow leak. Um, and that is oftentimes what causes some of the more severe symptoms like stroke mm -hmm. or seizure. And when did you first notice something was going wrong? A very interesting story. Um, I didn't notice anything was going on until I got a phone call from the school at 9.30 in the morning on a Tuesday that my daughter had had a seizure in class and the ambulance was on their way. We had never had any reason to suspect anything was wrong. She'd never had an MRI because she'd never needed one um, and never shown any signs of anything abnormal. Um, and so we got the call and rushed to the hospital and we were transferred um, to Children's Hospital in Phoenix. And at the Children's Hospital, you know, doctors come in and out and they're throwing all these big words at you and you don't know what they're saying and you don't know what they mean. And they're taking your kid for this test and that test. And you don't even know what the tests mean, let alone what they're finding out of these tests. Um, and then at about 10 o'clock at night, um, a neurosurgeon finally came in to see us to say that they had gotten their results from the MRI. And he had asked if anybody had told us what was happening. And I very frankly told him, yes, but I don't know what any of it means. 
And so he sat down and he explained the actual diagnosis and said that um, she had two lesions in particular that they were concerned with that were roughly two centimeters each. And they were pressing against her motor strip. And he was going to present her case to conference to see how to approach surgically to get them removed. Um, we were going to be staying overnight and putting, um, getting seizure meds on board. And as long as she was stable, we'd be able to go home in the morning and then just wait for them to call us. Um, and then he noted that in her chart, it said she was an identical twin. And they said, he said, asked, you know, do you know for sure that she's an identical twin? And I said, yes, we've done the twin test when they were 13. Um, and he said then, because she has more than one, this is genetic and her twin has it as well. Wow. What an overwhelming, scary, emotional day for all of you. I can't imagine how that felt first getting that phone call and rushing to the hospital and desperately wanting a diagnosis and then probably getting this diagnosis and feeling like, what now? What did that feel like when they started to tell you a little bit more about her and her sister's diagnosis? Um, I always say that this happening during COVID was both the best and worst timing because it was terrible because it was just her and I in the room. No one else could be there because it was the emergency room during COVID. This was the fall of 2020. Um, but it was also the best thing because it forced me to keep myself together because my 16 year old daughter is laying in this bed, hooked up to all these things, being told that she has a rare incurable brain surgery is the only treatment genetic disease and her whole life changed. And she's just looking at me and I'm like, okay, so we're going to do it. We're going to figure it out. It was, I was very, it was very surreal. Like I couldn't quite grasp what he was telling me. I, till that point, I had never known anyone who had had brain surgery. And he's telling me that this is now part of our life. I don't even know what that means. I can't even process that, you know, like how does one even process this? I mean, I, the, the most extensive surgery I've ever had is a C-section. I don't know what to do with this. So it was very surreal. And it took probably a couple of days to really hit me because I was so busy. You know, as mom, I'm like busy, like, okay, we have to find the right neurologist and we have to research and find the right seizure medication. And is this the right place for surgery? And, and all we're checking all the things. So I'm so busy. I'm like up at like two and three in the morning in my bathrobe with my cup of coffee over my iPad, like a crazy person trying to track down someone to help my daughters. Um, so I didn't really have an opportunity to process things for a couple of days. And when I did, it was this just kind of this overwhelming sense of why? Like we've all asked, like, why is this happening to our child? Why is it my child and not another child? And hearing people tell me things like everything happens for a reason makes me very angry because <laughs> I think there's just no reason and it's just nonsense and we just have to deal with what is. Um, but that's a whole other tangent that I won't start on because <laughs> we could be here all day. <laughs> I feel so like, that moment of where like you're still in this panic survival mode and you're researching everything and you're going to find a cure and you're going to find the answer. And then there isn't like, I feel so touched by that and that feeling and can share that emotion with you. I know 
you know, we, our children don't have the same rare disease, but I'm always fascinated about these things that we go through during the diagnosis stage that are so similar and so relatable. And some of that is what keeps us going as rare disease parents. And then I also wanted to know, what was the conversation like when you have a daughter who's symptomatic and going through this? And then you, on top of that, you have to go and have another conversation with a, your daughter who maybe had no symptoms at all. What did that look like? So the surgeon, um, shout out to David Shafron at Phoenix Children's, um, was incredible. He said it is very important, but not critical. If she's not symptomatic, we deal with what the, the crisis is. And right now, this one is the crisis. The other one is not. So that's good news. Um, so, you know, it's important that it be done, but it's not, you know, you don't have to race home and stick her in a tube um, if she's not symptomatic. And he did give us some different things to kind of watch for beyond just seizures, because I didn't know anything about any of this at the time. Um and said, otherwise, just, you know, go through the normal process, bring her to her, her GP, get a um, an order for an MRI. Once the MRI is complete, the GP will call. You can have the information sent directly to me and I can help. You know, it was great. Um, so he kind of, I mean, it was kind of spinning in the back of my mind, like, oh my gosh, I have to like, we're going to have to manage this and then manage it all over again. But everybody kept telling me like, the odds of both children needing surgical intervention are just like zero. That's like not a thing. That doesn't happen. So don't worry about it. If she's not symptomatic, she's fine. You don't need to worry about it. So I did kind of allow myself to hold on to that hope, which I think got me through. Um, we did wind up having surgery for twin B, who had the seizure, um, exactly two months post-diagnosis. And then one month after that, exactly, we got the call um, that twin A was actually having a bleed and they could see on the MRI that it had, it, that one lesion had bled repeatedly. Um, and they basically turned twin B's post-op into a combo and did twin A's pre-op. And then she wound up having surgery March 4th. So not quite three months after twin B surgery. So everything happened. So it was like, hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait. And then it was just off to the races. I kind of didn't really allow myself to think about it. I just kept holding on to that hope that everyone kept saying, like, it never happens that both kids need surgery. So you don't need to worry about that. That's not even something to worry about. Now I know better. Now I'm like, oh, really? Oh, really? Is that so? <laughs> Is that so? <laughs> well, with it being rare, how many instances of this have they seen? How could someone draw that conclusion? It just seems like they were trying to say something comforting. Right. It, and that's what it is. Yeah. And I do know there is another set of twins that I know of from the online community on, that I found on Facebook at 3 a.m. Um, and there's another set of twins and both of them had been operated on. Um, but it's not a very common thing. And they don't have the same type that my daughters have. 
because there's three different types um, and they don't have the same type as my daughter. So I didn't know, like, they're just trying to say something, like you said, something reassuring, something positive. And I didn't know how much to really believe any. I'm used to, you know, you get hurt, you go to the doctor, the doctor fixes it. That's the world I came from. And I came from the world of like, you know, mom, it hurts when I breathe like this. Well, don't breathe that way. You're fine. Go rub some dirt on it. You're fine. And now I live in like a complete opposite world from that. And I am like, oh my gosh, your toe hurts. We need to write down the time. Should we call the doctor? I'm like a complete opposite version of where I was three years ago. I just gave a talk recently that that discussed that particular point, which is our expectations when we go to a doctor or go into the healthcare system versus what the rare experience is, the lived experience. And it's completely different because you're coming in without the answers, not even knowing the questions. As you said, you had never known anybody with that needed brain surgery. And now your questions are like, well, what about my other daughter? And what about this? And what about this? And what about this? All the questions just came flooding into your mind. Right. And that's exactly it. It's just, we leave with, with a kind of answer to a question we didn't even know to ask and like 50 more questions. I'm like, nope, I'm in a hospital. This is full of doctors. <laughs> you people are supposed to know things. How am I leaving with more questions? And it is, it's very, it, it shakes the foundation of what we are raised to believe. We are in, in, you know, in Western society, we're raised to believe that if something hurts, you go to the doctor. The doctor tells you what's wrong. The doctor gives you a solution and you move on. And where does these parents are not at all prepared for doctors saying, I don't know. We're doing the best we can. We don't know, <laughs> which is pretty much all we get. How did those conversations shift for you? Like maybe towards the middle or later into the diagnosis? Because I remember at the beginning, we didn't really question any doctors. Like you said, we kind of assumed that they knew best, that they might know Everly best. And then I can't even think of the exact moment, but there's all of a sudden, like you're the advocate and you know your kid best. And you maybe realize that more than you did initially when you had your kids for 16 years. Do you remember that monumental shift and how conversations started to shift for you and her, their team? I do. And it happened very early on. I was very lucky. Um, so our neurosurgeon at PCH, um, Dr. Shafron, asked in our consult about surgery what we kind of, you know, what we were experiencing as far as symptoms since she was hospitalized. And I said, you know, she's on this anti-seizure medication from the hospital. Um, I don't know if you guys say like medication names, so you can bleep it um, or take it out, but Capra. And she was experiencing the traditional symptoms that can come along with that, um, with some of these seizure meds, this one in particular, where she was very angry. She would fly off the handle. She was being very combative with her sister primarily. Um, but, and, and she was just exhaustion isn't even like the tip of the iceberg, you know? Um, and so I said, you know, I don't know if this is just normal. And he said, 
well, sometimes it is, but that doesn't mean it's the solution. So I was like, well, I was just going to talk to the neurologist. He said to give it two to four weeks and see how she did. And he said, we're not going to do that. You'll have a new med tomorrow. And it was kind of the first time where I thought like, this doesn't seem right, but this is what the doctor's saying. So I guess we just go with it. Um, And having another medical professional say, no, no, no your instincts are right. We're not doing this. And that kind of gave me, and like I said, it was very early on. It was only not even a month into our journey at that point um, that I just kind of was like given that boost of confidence. Like I am, if something doesn't seem right to me as their mother, then it's probably not right. And it at least deserves a second look. And that just kind of gave me the confidence to use my voice to advocate. And there have been a few times that I've had to do it, by and large, we are very lucky in the sense that we have Barrow here, which is one of two places that people come from all over the world for treatment for this. Um, we have the Barrow Clinic at Phoenix Children's Hospital, so they are well-versed in, I mean, as well-versed as anyone can be in my daughter's diagnosis. So when I say this is what we're hearing in the community, they're pretty quick to say, okay, let's talk about it. Um, But I'm much quicker, I think, to say that than I would have been had that surgeon not validated my hesitation on keeping her on that first seizure med, honestly. I love that. And to feel supported and validated is half the battle, I feel like, in the rare disease world. And then one other piece I want to touch on kind of before we move forward, both of um, Raghav and Everly they're not at a place where they can voice and advocate for themselves. What's that look like for your daughters now between 16 and 18? Because you're feeling empowered to advocate for them, but probably also teaching them to advocate for themselves. And I would love to hear that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I am constantly pushing them to be more involved and to, and, and we we are very lucky. Our team will ask the question directly to my daughters and then like ask me to like elaborate if they're not clear on something. And I mean, let's be honest here. This brain surgery is a brain injury. It's just intentional. So they know that there are some cognitive delays, um, but they are very good about, they want to hear from the girls first. And I've been really just kind of, and it's hard as a mom, like I want to like come in and manage. um, But I just like force myself to like sit on my hands and keep my mouth shut and just wait and let them talk first. And, and then, you know, if something doesn't seem quite right, the doctor will then look to me and to elaborate or ask follow-up questions of them or of me. Um, I've, you know, just kind of been taking little steps. I mean, these are big things. I know when I was 18, I could barely manage scheduling my own general practitioner appointment. I mean, that wasn't really something that most 18-year-olds are tasked with on a just a, a typical child with no medical, extra medical needs. Um, and so I still manage a lot of their appointment setting and making sure that the follow-ups are done on time, but I'm starting to include them on those. And I'm like, yeah, you need to manage this. You need to, this is like medication refills. You need to manage this. And yeah, I have a reminder in my phone because I'm not a fool because they're 18. And like I said, I couldn't have scheduled all these things and done all these things myself when I was 18 and I don't have a brain injury. So it's like, I'm, I'm 
I'm kind of forcing them to be accountable, but I'm still the backup. I'm still the safety net. I'm still like, hey, that med was supposed to be refilled yesterday and I haven't gotten a phone call that it's ready. So do you think we want to do that today or we wait until we run out to see what happens, you know? Um, And they are pretty responsible about that. And they're also in charge of certain appointments. Like you're in charge of this appointment. You're in charge of that appointment. Um, And again, I have everything in my calendar, in my phone to be backup. (laughs) I actually think you're putting something on them that, that many parents aren't doing with their typical kids. Because I've, I've worked a lot with youth and that 17 to 18 year old, what do you mean time and date and things like that? You know, just what are we doing now? Um, and I, I think that's actually, that's a, that's an added struggle to try to push your kids a little bit faster than their, their normal development would be. You clearly, you know, jumped into this a couple of years ago unintentionally, involuntarily, but now you've actually taken a job working for an organization that cares for caregivers. Tell me about that transition. How did that happen? It was really slow and really fast at the same time, um, as many things are in my life. I was a managing editor for a twin parenting website called Twiniversity. Um, Shout out to Twiniversity. Um, I worked there for two and a half, three years um, and kind of started really part time and worked my way up and was kind of, you know, helping manage the day to day operations and was doing really well. And I got along with my coworkers and my boss and it was I loved my job. my daughters both had surgery while I was there and I worked through it because I didn't know how to deal with what was going on. I didn't deal with what was going on. I just worked. I sat in the waiting room at Barrow Neurological and worked on my laptop because I didn't know what else to do with myself because I it was COVID. So I was by myself. So I just sat and worked. Um, and my boss was great. She encouraged me to take time and I couldn't. I just couldn't do it. Um, and then there were follow-up appointments and therapies and scans and just, it, it doesn't end. It's not like, you know, a diagnosis with this, with a cure and now it's over. This is not ending at any point. So we just got to keep going. Um, and it, it just became a source of tension within me where I would have to tell my boss that I needed three hours off because it's not right down the street and I have to go pick up a kid from school and bring her to the doctor and then drop her back off at school and then come back home and then I can be on that call. And I always felt bad and I was starting to feel a lot of guilt and a lot of, you know, I can't be in three places at once and I can't do all the things. And she was always trying to be, I think, overly understanding, which made it even more uncomfortable for me. It was it was nothing that she did or that the job was doing. It was just becoming increasingly difficult to keep it separate. Um, and another rare parent um, I had kind of posted something, I think, on social media, just saying, like, this is really hard, like working and managing this. And this other mom said, have you ever thought about, like, coming over to the dark side, as it were, and working in advocacy? And I was like, not really. Um, But I had heard of Angel Aid um, 
and was just kind of like, I mean, I know a little bit about it and I've kind of checked it out and checked out the website and watched some YouTube videos and stuff. And it seemed really cool and like a cool concept. Um, but I was still working, you know, 40 hours a week at my full-time job. So I didn't really invest too much into it. And I just kind of thought, I wonder if they have any jobs. And literally two weeks later, I was starting working for Angel Aid. I met with Crystal and we hit it off. And I people think I'm in a cult. I'm like, no, I just love my job. And it just like, it's great. I love it. I love what I'm doing. And I love that I can, you know, spend time talking to other moms and dads and, you know, patient advocates. And I just, I love it. (laughs) Well, and it, to me, I, the way I can relate to that, the whole tension you were feeling, the most stressful days of my whole career were bring your daughter to work day because you had this split attention thing going on. And the first couple of years, I my kids were really little, like, six. They were they were too young for the programs that were going on. So it was just like this, and you just felt, you got home and were exhausted. Now, put that into 40 hours a week, week after week after week after week, I I can't relate to that. Um, but I can, I can feel for you. Um, and I'm glad that Angel Aid, you know, sort of gave you the place to kind of focus your energy, it seems. Yeah. It feels more productive. And not that I didn't feel more productive um, at Twiniversity. I definitely felt productive, but this is in a different way. I, At the time that it was happening, when I told my old boss, I said, I, I, have, I, have, I have bad news. I'm sorry. And she's like, you're leaving. And I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She said, I could feel it. You were being called somewhere else. I could feel it. You got to do it. And I told her about the opportunity. And she was like, girl, if you don't jump on this, so help me. Like she was very supportive, but it wasn't like I was leaving my job. I was being pulled in a new direction. Like my whole life was being pulled in this new direction. Um, and I'm very grateful for it. I mean, God knows I'm kind of all over the place. Um, but this is the, my job is the one thing that I feel like I'm supposed to be doing this. I may not be doing everything right all the time, but this is what I'm supposed to be doing right now. (laughs) I'm wondering too, because I think sometimes there's this discussion about this invisible mom load that we carry pre-rare disease. Then you put rare disease on top of that and you're managing a career. And you expressed a little bit of how your mental and emotional health looked when you were, you know, full-time in your career and trying to manage that all. But did you see a shift then once you got to Angel Aid and how you felt and how you carried that load? I definitely did. Like, I have, I was actually just talking in one of our groups about this last week, um, because Angel Aid, we run these small support groups, and I was just talking about this with one of the practitioners, and I said, if you would have met me a year ago, and she goes, I did, remember? Yeah, you've come a long way. Um, I started going to the groups, and I started, you know, really taking some of this to heart and thinking about it, because I was wound so tight and I was such a control freak and I was uh, the fixer of all the things. And when you have a child, two children, no less, diagnosed with a rare disease, you can't fix that. You just can't. So I just kind of had to like become okay with, it doesn't have to be perfect to be good. 
we can find moments of joy in this overwhelming grief that we are all managing day to day. And just recently, we were talking in one of our groups, and one of the moms said, a bad moment doesn't make a bad day. And it kind of clicked in the reverse in my head. Um, And I kind of thought like a good moment doesn't have to make a good day either. So I, I think as rare moms, we kind of feel guilty for finding those moments of joy because we feel like we're supposed to be living in this grief all the time. And and we are, but it doesn't have to take over. And so I kind of started to, my mind started to shift in different ways where I'm like, you know, if I have a good moment, I don't have to say everything about today was great. My life is wonderful. My life is perfect. My life isn't perfect. But you know what? My life wasn't perfect before my daughters were diagnosed either. And I've kind of been able to see that. Now, would I chew off my left arm? to go back three years and pretend none of this happened? Of course I would. Absolutely I would. Um, But that's not the reality we live in. And I can't live being sad and grief stricken all the time. We have to move forward as moms. And I was, you know, it took a while to get there and I'm still working on it. I'm not perfect. Um, God knows. But I think Given this opportunity to work on these things with other moms who get it, like you were saying earlier, Brittany, like we have different diagnoses in our homes, but we have a lot of shared experience. And that's how I feel in these groups. I can go into a group and hear a mom talk about how, you know, she was afraid to check on her kid who slept in. And I know what that means instantly. And I know how that feels instantly. And nobody else gets it that way. Anybody else, if I were to go to a playground and say that to a parent, they'll be like, what's wrong with you? Why? Who does that? So it's a very different environment that I have kind of thrown myself into at least, at least once or twice a week I'm in these groups. And it has changed my life in ways that I couldn't have predicted. And I am, I, I mean, you see it all the time where people say like, if you knew me before, yada, yada, that's not who I am anymore. Like, it's literally not who I am anymore. All that yada, yada, it's all true. It's literally not who I am anymore at all. Oh, I'm so emotional over here. So I got to pull myself together a little bit. But um, I was just going to press you, Brittany, and oh, say, gee, did <laughs> any of that sound familiar? Oh, um, I actually need to take a second. No, I get it. And in some of these groups, like I've, we've come into groups where we're all laughing, we're all crying and it switches back and forth. And it, we, we just lift each other up. We support each other in ways that other people just can't, cause they just don't get it. It's not that they don't want to, they don't have the capacity to, because they don't get it. And I'm so grateful for these women. I've been having a really hard time in recent weeks with my daughters um, and a lot of things going on. And one of the moms was practically in tears last week saying that she was worried about me because I hadn't really been saying much in the groups and it kind of forced me to speak. And it was like the second the words came out of my mouth, I felt like 3% better, not all better, but that kind of got me on the path to like, okay, I really need to start like putting all this stuff that I've been working on in the last year into practice. I really need to start bringing that back into my life. Like every day I need to really work on it instead of just sitting in the, why me? How is this happening? This isn't fair. Life's not fair. Move on. You know? Um, so it really kind of, I mean, these women become like family. These are some of my closest friends and I've never physically laid eyes on any of them beyond on a computer screen. So it's, 
kind of remarkable. Oh, it's so empowering. And I think even uh, probably a year ago, I had that same conversation. Uh, It went two ways. I've never met half of the people that I am friends with in the rare disease world, including Kevin and Samith. (laughs) And, you know, the other thing is I I did do a angel aid retreat and our listeners know this and uh, I have, I am not the same person I was a year ago either. And that is the emotion that it stirred up for me. Yeah. Yeah. I completely, that completely resonates with me. 100%. So I want to ask about your son. How is he doing in all of this? My son is, um, he's very quiet. He's very reserved. Um, he will kind of stand back when things happen. And then later he'll come to me and ask if she's okay. You know, he's very, he's observing everything, but he doesn't say much, which of course makes me worry about him more. Um, because I'm a mom and he's the baby of the family. So, you know, um, but he, one time one of my daughters was driving the car and they, the three of them were together going to get a soda or ice cream or something, you know, on a Friday afternoon or whatever. Um, and my husband and I were in the pool and he turned on the fountain. So I couldn't hear anything because the fountain is super loud, by the way, I don't recommend it. If you have rare children that leave the house, do not recommend putting on the fountain. Um, and my daughter that was driving had a seizure in the car, driving the car. And so they pulled, I mean, my, she, hers only affect her left side, fortunately. So she was able to move the car over to the side of the road and her sister was in the front seat and she just kind of threw it in park and got out of the car and made sure she was safe. And my son just sat in the back seat, like, uh, like kind of deer in headlights. He didn't know what to do. Um, and they called me and called me and called me and I got there <clears throat> as the ambulance was, arriving and the fire truck was already there. Um, and I ran over and when he saw me, he got out of the car and stood like up against a wall on the sidewalk, um, waiting for me to come over and see him. And he asked me if she was okay, if she's going to be okay. And I'm like, yeah, she's fine. Um, but he's, he's very observant and very quiet, but deeply protective of his sisters and deeply concerned for their well-being. He knows their diagnoses. He knows their medications. He knows where they go to see doctors and where they've had surgery and all he remembers all the things almost as well as I do. He knows where the folders are that tracks everything, all the stuff. Yeah. He's very, very concerned with his sisters. Wow. You you mentioned that earlier how with your daughters, you need to get on them about the calendar and things. And that's kind of advancing them in their, their adulthood what he's taking it you say quiet you say observant you say he knows all the details it's like he's actually maturing very quickly um, because of this Um, he is he definitely is i mean he will just be sitting there playing video games on his or watching videos on his phone and something happens you know one of his sisters has a seizure and he's just you know he he sits still looking at his phone, but his eyebrows kind of move around. Like he's kind of trying to see out of his, but he doesn't want to get involved, but he knows all the things and he is paying attention. He is aware of 
all the things, all the time. He is very mature. And I wouldn't have said that three years ago at all. He's very much the baby, but he is very mature in that way. Yes. I sometimes see that in my son, Maverick. Again, my kids are way younger, but he is such an observer and, you know, her number one fan and supporter at three. So I wonder what that will look like when he's 14 and, you know, rambling off how to put her medicine in her G-tube without looking because he's just a master (laughs) helper and caregiver when it's appropriate. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm totally on board with, you know, he is, this impacts his life every day. And in a lot of ways, he is a caregiver. No, he's not doing the heavy lifting and he's not, you know, driving them any place or picking up their medications or going to appointments. But when, you know, one of them has surgery and can't be left alone and I need to go take a shower and get a sandwich, he's the one that comes in and sits while she's sleeping and he can sit quietly with his iPad or his switch or whatever quietly and just be there just in case. And I trust him that if something happens, he'll come get me right away and he'll make sure she's safe and then come get me right, you know, and do the things in the right order. Yeah. It's one of those things when, when these kids are 14 and they've been, and Milo, my, my son, my son wasn't even raised in this environment. This is new for him. Um, so the fact that he's able to kind of just swoop in and pick up some of those responsibilities and those traits honestly is remarkable. I wouldn't have guessed it. <laughs> so Brittany, you want to ask the last question there? I sure do. It's been such a pleasure to have you here today. I'm so touched by this conversation. And uh, as you heard, emotional. Is there something we haven't covered that you really want to share with our listeners today? I mean, really, I would just say that community is everything. If I didn't have the moms and dads that I have met along the way, I mean, grandparents, aunts, anybody who is caregiving in that way that I have met along this journey, I don't know how I would get through every catastrophe because they just keep coming. It's never going to get any easier, but we get better at managing it and The only way that I have found effective to do that is through community, through people around you that just get you and get how you're feeling. And that understanding is completely irreplaceable. There's nothing like it on this earth. Well, thank you so much for that. We are so happy that we got a chance to talk to you and we wish your family well. Thank you, and thank you for having me today. Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4.org on the Raising Rare podcast page or at CureGPX4.org. The Set D5 community is currently getting organized. We will let you know where you can donate soon. You can continue to follow Raghav and Everly stories next time on Raising Rare. <laughs>